Hello, and welcome to The Blue Jay, the Blue and Whites podcast on what's up, down, left, and right on Columbia University's campus. Congratulations, you made it through 2020. And as a reward, The Blue Jay is back for our final episode of the semester. This is also my, your host, Kate Steiner, last episode as director of the podcast. Despite the challenges of this year, it was really fulfilling to be able to put out episodes and work with incredible writers and artists. But don't fret, a familiar voice, Chase Cutterelli, will be the Blue Jays' new director, and I couldn't be more thrilled. We thank you for your continued support. The Blue and White Magazine's December issue has been digitally published with more color than ever before on our website, theblueandwhite.org. Check it out! We'll begin today's episode with an interview conducted by Raquel Turner discussing the process behind admitting students to live in limited university housing during the pandemic. If you take a walk down College Walk this month, you will see a Columbia campus far from its usual December flurry. On any other regular December, we might have seen students rushing from class to class, snapping pictures in front of the lighted trees, or chatting their way to the subway entrance. But this year, most students are safely finishing their final seasons at home, leaving the campus to a small housing community of only about 900 students. However quiet the place of these students might seem now, their transition to campus housing was highly contested. As Columbia narrowed down their available housing possibilities this past summer amidst constantly evolving COVID-19 regulations, the school administration came to a decision in mid-August that it would only be able to house students who demonstrated significant need. A form was sent to the student body telling those who felt they fit this intentionally vague descriptor to make their case in a few paragraphs demonstrating why they required a place on on on-campus housing. As students began receiving the decisions on these forms, Many students turned to Columbia Confessions, an anonymous Facebook group, to express a host of concerns. Some criticized their peers' decisions to return unnecessarily to an area with such a close proximity to at-risk black and brown communities. Some questioned individuals' reasons to return to New York, expressing suspicions that they were motivated by a fear of missing out rather than a fear of their old living situations. Freshmen reported feeling as if their entire Instagram was inundated with students packing up for the Big Apple, and upperclassmen called out peers who seemed to be returning for reasons that had never plagued them in the years before. On the flip side, students who had received on-campus housing reported feeling pressured to reveal deeply personal stories of their reasons for returning to New York in order to free themselves of suspicion. Curious to understand the logistics behind the student body's anxieties, I spoke to Matthew Potoshnik, the Associate Dean of Student and Family Affairs, to get a sense of how last summer's housing application process was really conducted. How, how involved would you say you were with the whole housing process over the summer? I was a part of the team that um, reviewed every single application for students that were requesting to come back to campus, um, worked with uh, colleagues from across the college and engineering um, to make those decisions and sort of was the primary liaison between our IT team, which actually developed the application process, um, and those of us that were reviewing and making the decisions. Could you go over what the sort of the path for an application was? Like how, what were there committees that they passed along to? Sure. So obviously rewinding a little bit back towards March, there was a lot of disruption in the normal systems and processes and calendaring of the housing process for the 2021 academic year. Uh, And so I know housing initially moved forward with uh, the lottery process and the room selection process with the assumption that we would be open um, as normal for the fall semester. And obviously lots of things happened over the course of the spring and summer that that changed all of those dates, processes, um, and, and sort of decisions. And so 
when it was clear that the university had decided that we were going to move forward in a significantly de-densified manner, uh, it was not possible um, under that guidance uh, from New York State, from the public health experts, um, that we would be able to house all of our students on campus. And so there was a need to create a process that would help us determine who wanted to be on campus, who needed to be on campus, but also recognizing that a lot of students, because of concerns about public health and safety, um, may decide to stay at home or, or were interested in living elsewhere. Obviously, lots of things changed um, between the time that process was completed in uh, sort of mid-July through when room assignments were released in early August and then I think it was August 14th is when um, the university made the announcement that in fact our uh, established plans were, were going to change and that uh, the initial de-densification that we had um, established needed to be um, done again. Um, but when we think about the types of requests that we, we got, uh, you know, in the initial process, uh, the, the analysis we used were students who lacked um, safe and necessary conditions for learning in their home environment. That could mean a variety of different things in a variety of different contexts. Uh, for some students, it literally is a safety issue. Uh, they're not safe at home um, because of familial issues, uh, and that can include a variety of considerations related to personal health and safety. Um, it could mean that um, they they're, they're safe at home, but they just don't have uh, sort of the capacity to be productive in an academic sense. Uh, we have families that share small apartments or homes uh, with multiple siblings or just a lack of space in which students could, could sort of focus on their academic materials. Uh, so this sort of safe and necessary conditions is, is a broad category that includes lots of different contexts and, and sort of areas. Uh, some students we uh, know were engaged in high-level academic projects or research, so they could only be academically successful if they were here on campus. Um, they're a, a senior doing high-level lab work, their senior thesis or seminars and the materials or, or uh, items that they needed could only be made available on campus. So we needed to sort of be flexible with a population that, based on their academic pursuits, needed to be here. Uh, we were also pretty cognizant in the early part of the summer that students from countries other than the United States uh, were very worried about their ability um, to either travel to, remain in uh, the United States, or they were worried about significant time zone differences that would be a factor in their academic success. I just want to sort of point out that everything was read individually, uh, and we, we used all of the information available to us um, to make decisions, and they're not going to be 100% perfect. Uh, you know, some students are more comfortable disclosing and sharing information about their personal circumstances than others. Uh, you know, we are, so the, the group that was reading all of these uh, requests consists of staff from um, the Center for Student Advising, so that we had an academic focus on, on our analysis from undergraduate student life um, and residential life so that we were thinking about sort of the community of students um, from the dean's offices of both for college and engineering. So it, it was really a holistic review, um, but were people reading the submissions of other people? You know, it's, it's not 100% perfect. Um, there were staff from the Center for Student Advising, the Dean's Office, Undergraduate Student Life, my office, which is Student and Family Support, and you know we we used uh, an online application, and so we were able 
you know, in a, in a remote work environment, that was super important that we could not have to rely on paper, um, but we could sort of, we used an online application so that we could read all of the student requests um, and understand, uh, you know, what their particular need was. Uh, so every application was reviewed. We sorted it by class year so that, you know, because initially we were charged with bringing back freshmen and sophomores in the fall. So we read things by class initially to, to sort of make those decisions. Um, and we used the information that was available to us based on what the students shared, but also what we know about students from like SSOL. So we can see, you know, if the student is very, very high need uh, and, and lacks the financial resources to be successful at home, we know that because that's part of their financial aid record. Um, if students are um, emancipated from family because of safety issues, we know that. Like there are pieces of, of, of students' um, biographical and demographical information that, that's available to us. And so we used all of those existing records to help us uh, in a holistic way understand uh, what, uh, what is in the student's record and what they're disclosing in, in their request for housing. Um, it was, uh, you know, 12 to 14 hours a day um, for about two weeks to read all of the applications, to, to make all of the decisions, to generate all of the letters, to do the appeals. I mean, this was a significantly time-intensive process, and we did it that way because we wanted to read every single application. We didn't want um, to just blindly approve things for, um, for the ease of the process, and we know that students we're sharing some personal information sometimes. So for us, it was important to honor that and to read it, to give it the, the weight that it deserved. Um, one of the things that I think comes up often in this is the reason a student was approved may not be clear to other students, that sometimes in their um, request to be on campus, students disclose things that other students on campus might not know about them, um, issues in their family, issues in their personal life, issues of their own health or wellness that um, others may not know and others honestly don't have a right to know. Um, and so, you know, one of the guiding principles in all of this is we respected the privacy of the individual students who are requesting on-campus housing. And, you know, our process was really rooted in looking at them as an individual, using all of the information that was available to us to determine, you know, in the limited number of beds that were made available to us, um, could we offer one to the student with the hope um, that we would enable them to be both personally and academically successful and safe and, and able to take advantage of the semester. We know it wasn't 100% perfect. We know we may have missed a student um, because they didn't or weren't able to express the, the, the full scope of their need. Uh, and there were some students who could be totally safe at home, um, but because of their academic pursuits or sort of a need to be here for other reasons, um, they're here. And, and you know, that's okay too. Um, you know, our community is, is diverse and, and part of that diversity is there are different reasons why, why people are here on campus this semester. Um, but we tried not to compare one student's need to another. We really did try to analyze every individual request and, and sort of understand the needs of the person who submitted it. From my conversation with Mr. Potoshnik, it seems as if the Housing Administration was careful enough to make sure that every student on campus was a necessary addition, because taking these decisions lightly could have literally cost lives. So I think the suspicion around the on-campus community wasn't necessarily an issue of students slipping through the cracks, or even necessarily one of widespread dishonesty. 
I think for one, it's a reflection of an iffy track record with the school's most vulnerable populations. Often, students of color, low-income students, and even students with particular health needs are left to their own devices and to do their own advocating. So naturally, as a worldwide pandemic spread that puts these exact groups at risk, they're going to feel some resentment and suspicion and feel like they're being failed again. After years of navigating Columbia with little protection, it doesn't come as a surprise that they're going to be a little suspicious of people taking up space in such a valuable resource as housing. Another factor I think is at play here is that, especially as restrictions began decreasing in the late summer, to survive the coronavirus, we basically had to hold each other to an honor system and trust that despite the freedoms that became available to us, we would conduct ourselves safely, follow suggestions, push ourselves to social distance even when it was hard. And the fact of the matter is that people did not always follow those with tremendous consequences to the people around them. So even outside of this particular controversy, there seemed to be a lot of mistrust and concern flying around about how likely others were to value each other and keep each other safe. The flip side of our growing connection to the decisions of strangers that those earlier moments in the school year demonstrated is that we really know very little about each other outside of what we present. And as much as we want to feel informed and make conclusions about what's going on for our own well-being and safety, it's really important to step back and acknowledge that we really have no idea how the time what the reality of somebody else's life is. The best we can do is advocate for ourselves and hope for the best. And it seems like that's a lesson we all learned as a student body, because as juniors and seniors return for the second semester, I haven't seen a repeat of this controversy on Columbia Confessions or anywhere else. Hopefully that means that to some extent we've proved that we can trust each other to take care of our community. Next, a poem written and read by Elizabeth Jackson. Autumn's Through a Window, 12.54 p.m. Looking toward the sky, the trees, green, golden, rust, a kind of autumn bouquet, branches spanning outward like flowers reaching toward the face of a bride, like splayed fingers themselves. Bushes nearer the ground coalesce into an irregular mass of green, they haven't yet been told the time for barrenness is coming. They are still in the fist of ending summer. Sunlight, reflective, makes you wonder about the waxy coating on the leaves, makes you wonder how hot it is out there, makes you wonder if you should worry about how hot it is out there. Probably. Tree trunks stretch out of view, leaning, cut off by the harsh line of white wood in a window frame. Stretch beyond. That painted wood is not of your kind, you deep brown trunks that look deceptively like matchsticks. If I went outside, I could not fit one hand or even two around the circumference of your aged stoicism. 4.35 p.m. The sky is white now, sun so almost gone that I can make out the finest, topmost branches of the spindly trees. There is a grayer tint to branches and leaves now. You can look up without closing your eyes to the sun. The smallest leaves on the highest branches against a paper sky look like someone brought a pencil down rapidly many times. Dots of controlled fury. An old birdhouse outline, obscured by a nearby small tree. Its color exactly matches the blue water-tinged, white-painted sky. 
a bare tree with one primary branch that splits outward into two, almost perfectly horizontal, these open palmed branches. They make you wonder about stretching outward, not upward, to the sun. The Blue Jay is brought to you by The Blue and White Magazine, a monthly undergraduate publication from Columbia University. Go to theblueandwhite.org to read current and archive student works stretching back to our founding in 1890. Like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter at Blue and White Mag to stay updated with the magazine. All views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the speakers. Audio Director, Chase Cutterelli, with staff member Raquel Turner. Editor-in-Chief, Dominic Gallo. Online editor, Lila Trilling. Publisher, Haley Ryan. Illustrations editor, Samia Menon. Literary editors, Gabby Edwards and Benjamin Moe. Assistant literary editor, Kat Chen. Layout editor, Gigi Lee. Senior editors, Mary Elizabeth Dawson, Sylvie Epstein, Elizabeth Jackson, Nicole Kohut, Brooke McCormick, Sam Needleman, Sophie Poole, Eliza Rudolovich, and Claire Shang with music from Stephanie Chow and contributions from Elizabeth Jackson. Thanks for listening and take care.